from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Tracy Jan calling from The Post. I'm President Trump, how are you? Hi, it's Robin Gibbon at The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, April 13th. Today, how to reopen the country, long lines at food banks, and how New Zealand has squashed the curve. I'm going to have to make a decision, and I only hope to God that it's the right decision. But I would say without question, it's the biggest decision I've ever had to make. The White House has been signaling for the last couple of days that they want to reopen because of the impact on the economy. And they they keep talking about this date of April 30th when these last group of guidelines are supposed to be lifted or they will expire. And they do say that they're going to let public health experts weigh in. My name is Lena Sun. I'm a health reporter for The Washington Post. You know, staying in... Are you determined? I I would love to open it. I'm not determined anything. The facts are going to determine what I do. But we do want to get the country open. So important. So I'll have a a task force. I'll have a council. It's going to be... There is a big fear out there that uh, their focus is on the date and not the data, to coin a phrase that Tom Frieden, the former CDC director, likes to use. And that remains to be seen. And I believe on Tuesday... The White House is expected to announce the members of its economic task force for reopening the country. And so that gives many public health officials and experts pause about what criteria are going to be used to do that. And so for public health officials and also for leaders of states, for for governors, what are they saying about when they think is the wisest time to start reopening the country? I think they want to see at the very basic um, something that I think Americans deserve is a national strategy. What is the plan? In the absence of a national strategy that has been detailed and publicly articulated, you see governors, former government officials, disease specialists, nonprofits, all coming up with sort of common elements for things that must be done because you have to look beyond the next couple of weeks and months down the road. And they are focusing on three pillars. And those are you need to ramp up testing to identify people who are infected. Then you have to find everyone they had contacts with. This is something called contact tracing. And it would have to be done on a scale that the country has never attempted before. And then when you find those people, you have to isolate the infected and quarantine their contacts so the rest of the country doesn't have to stay in permanent lockdown. So it seems like at least so far there have been significant efforts to ramp up testing um, and obviously to try to get people who are infected either to stay in their homes or to be at the hospital if they need to be at the hospital. But but this pillar, contact tracing, that doesn't seem like a thing that has been pursued on a massive scale, at least so far. Right. In other countries, they had to really scale that up to um, contain 
the virus. In the city of Wuhan in China, they deployed an army of 1,800 teams of five each, 9,000 health workers to do contact tracing in a city of 11 million. Tom Frieden, the former CDC director, has estimated that authorities in the U.S. would need about one contact tracer for every four cases, or the larger number that has been thrown out there is 300,000 people. Okay, that is a lot of people. But you think about it, this is what has to happen. As cases go down and as local and state health officials gradually ease the mitigation efforts, it's not all going to be done at the same time, right, to sort of ease it up, new cases are going to continue. And to make sure that we do not have another explosive outbreak, you need people to find out who those cases are, identify them, identify who their contacts are, do that same thing, isolate and then quarantine. In a report that was released Friday, the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security and the Association of State and Territorial Health Officials, ASTO, it represents state health departments, they estimate you need 100,000 additional contact tracers. There's also plans to ask the Peace Corps volunteers to step up. You have, what, 10 million unemployed people and many people losing their jobs. These are all bodies that can be tapped and trained to do this. And you wouldn't be going door to door. You would be making phone calls. It's very, very time intensive. And you need to do it quickly because you're in a race against the virus. But if there's no national plan right now on putting in place a program or system to have that type of contact tracing where you're hiring 100,000 to 300,000 people, are states doing anything to try to put something like this in place? Yes. Since the federal government response has been reactive, not proactive, and not leading Um, in Massachusetts, for example, they have unveiled a plan to build their own contact tracing army. Today, I'm excited to announce the creation of the COVID-19 Community Tracing Collaborative. Enhanced tracing capacity is an enormously powerful tool for public health officials to rely on in their battle against COVID-19. The governor there, Charlie Baker, a Republican, has partnered with an international nonprofit group, um, Partners in Health, that has done this kind of work in Africa and in Haiti for tuberculosis and HOV and cholera. So their plan is to hire and train 1,000 people working from their homes, making 20 to 30 calls a day, and they could cover up to 20,000 contacts a day. And when we checked with them last week, just a few days after the initial announcement, the group had received 7,000 applicants and hired 150. The point is, people want to help, and they don't want to sit at home and wait to be infected. And there's a lot of untapped resources in America to do this. Utah has also asked its employees to to reassign people to do this, and um, they've asked for an additional 1,200 workers. San Francisco is trying to build a 150-person contact tracing team using city librarians, university staff, and medical students. There's another group that already does this for sexually transmitted diseases, and um, the group that represents uh, those workers have asked for increased federal funding to um, that 
that would go through the CDC to double the size of that workforce. Um, so instead of focusing on rectal gonorrhea and trying to find out who those contacts were, this could be another contact tracing for coronavirus. But if all these projects and programs are relatively piecemeal and they're either being done by nonprofits or by cities or states, is there a limit to their effectiveness if this is not a unified national campaign to try to map who has coronavirus, who could possibly have coronavirus, and and actually perform contact tracing in a comprehensive way? Well, contact tracing is done normally anyway on the ground by your local and um, local county and state health departments. That funding has been cut um, over the decade. And what is needed is a uniform guidance practice that would come from the CDC, the federal government, that could framework for the questions and the policy and how it should be done. And that would be really, really helpful. But in the face of federal inaction, these health departments, these these other places are not waiting around because you don't have time. And I think that is why you see so many of these proposals coming forward, this public call, because they are in a race against the virus. And the idea is you need the federal government, you need the White House task force to say, yes, we have to think about this. And and yes, the CDC needs to come out with with guidelines on how this is the, the what's the best way to do this. Lena Sun is a health reporter for The Post. So tell me about what it looks like at food banks right now. At most food banks across the country, they're just slammed. Now people are driving up. They're getting in very long lines. There are long lines of people who are waiting to get food. Stretch in some cases miles and miles and miles long. A lot of times when I talk with food bank association directors. This is Lisa Hamler-Fugit, Ohio Association of Food Banks. They'll say they're seeing, you know, I mean, at least double the number of people. Right now, statewide, on the low end, 100% increase. On the high end, over 500% increases. And they worry that this is only going to get worse. We have never seen the kind of demand on our system. And despite having food on the shelves, that they're feeding everybody that comes to them. And then when they run out of food, they close their doors. So we have no way of telling how many people are seeking food assistance through an emergency food provider and aren't being served because we've run out of food. A lot of these people have never been to a food bank or a food pantry before. They've lost their job or they've seen their hours cut or their kids are home from school and need more meals every day. And they just, they need help and they need it right now. A lot of these folks were our donors, our, you know, our supporters, our volunteers. And let me tell you, talk about hard people that volunteer calling and saying, I never thought I'd be in a situation. Can you help me? 
My colleague Jenna Johnson has been watching as the strain on food banks across the country has gotten worse, and the long lines have gotten even longer. And over the course of her reporting, she found out that these delays at food distribution centers are not just because of high demand. They're also an issue of paperwork. So part of the reason is that food banks that give out any sort of food that is paid for by the state government, by the federal government, there are a lot of rules about who can get that food. If you show up to a food bank during a normal time and you need help, you have to basically do an intake process. You have to give a bunch of information to the food bank, your name, your age, your address, the number of people who live in your household, and your income. And the food bank then needs to make sure that A, you live in the area that they serve, and B, that you're poor enough to be getting this food. But it's a process that can take four or five minutes. A lot of times there's a clipboard that gets passed back and forth uh, and the person has to sign off on it. When food banks are looking at how can we speed up this process, that is one step that they're like, if we could get rid of this, that's going to save us a lot of time. A lot of states have waived their requirements, but the big requirement is coming from the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Anytime federally funded food is going out, the federal government wants to know exactly who is getting that food. So in most states, they still have to go through this process. And the USDA has said that they will not waive this, that this must happen. But why not? I mean, both because it seems, frankly, crazy to make people wait in lines that are three or four or five hours long in order to get food, but also because this idea that you have a bunch of people who are waiting in a line together and passing a clipboard back and forth, that there are all kinds of opportunities for people to get sick or contract the virus from somebody else if they're all standing around together. So doesn't it seem like there is enough of a pressing reason here to be able to waive these requirements for pretty extraordinary circumstances? Yeah, you are saying exactly what I'm hearing from so many food bank directors who said, as soon as President Trump declared a national emergency, they just expected the USDA to lift some of these rules. This is Jane Clement smith I'm the executive director of Feeding Pennsylvania, where the State Association of Feeding America Food Banks. We need access to more food and we need ease of getting it to more people, like I said, temporarily. They didn't expect to have to find workarounds or to apply for different things to try to get out of this. We understand that, you know, there is a need to make sure that we are um, doing the best we can to ensure the people that get our food um, need it. But um, let me tell you, anybody who's sitting in a mile-long line, that you know, they need the food. They don't want to be sitting there. They've really become frustrated that the USDA just won't lift this unilaterally for everyone. And is there a precedent for that? Has the USDA lifted these requirements in, in other cases that were not usual circumstances? So here's what happens when there's a disaster. And let's remember, we've never gone through anything like what we're going through right now. Um, but this country has gone through natural disasters. When there is a hurricane, the state can say to the USDA, we are in a crisis right now. Grocery stores are closed. People are in need. We need to get some emergency food to people as quickly as possible. And the USDA will say, got it. 
go ahead and do that. And you don't have to follow the usual rules. Just let us know generally how many boxes of food you're taking to what neighborhoods, and that's good enough. A lot of states are now applying to do disaster distributions. They're saying, my state is in crisis. And even when they apply for it, I've heard from several states that the USDA is very hesitant to approve this. They're wanting these states to narrow the scope of what they're asking for. Maybe just narrow it to a a county or to a city or to um, a certain type of recipient. The pushback we got in the beginning that that was really um, disappointing was, uh, well, how are we going to ensure that these people really need this? And, you know, all the waste, fraud, and abuse you know, verbiage that anybody could use. And um, and we pushed back hard on the fact that there are so many people facing unemployment right now. This is everyone who is facing so many obstacles. And I was talking with officials in places like Louisiana and Pennsylvania and Ohio who have just really felt like they're kind of hitting their, their heads against the wall trying to explain to the USDA our entire state is in crisis right now. This is aid that we need across our entire state. The initial feedback was, you really need to narrow this down to certain counties or cities who are seeing high unemployment and high coronavirus numbers. And so my immediate reaction was like, what county is it starting to do that? Like this changes day by day, hour by hour. You know, how am I going to do this in one area and then tomorrow have to go back to you and ask for it in another area? What did the USDA say about why they are so in opposition to just doing like a blanket waiver for all the food banks in the country in terms of having to like meet these really bureaucratic requirements? So as I was corresponding with the USDA for this story, um, I would go to them with questions just like the ones that you're asking me as we have this conversation. And I would get back these responses that would take me so long to try to understand the jargon, the legalese. For us, it seems very easy to look at this and say, why doesn't the USDA just wave a magic wand and just say, guys, you don't have to do this paperwork for a few weeks. Don't sweat it. And that just doesn't seem to be an option. (laughs) The idea of changing the paperwork Um, is just something that doesn't seem to be able to happen quickly or easily. And there's also this attitude of wanting the states to make their own decisions. They're saying, well, we want states to come to us and ask us for that and to present a specific plan for what they're going to do in their state before we say yes. And is there any federal legislation that could address this? I mean, if the government has passed this multi-trillion dollar package to help people in all kinds of unprecedented ways, are they also looking at something like this as a more straightforward way of, of helping a lot of people really quickly? A number of lawmakers have been sending letters to the USDA, pressuring them to drop this rule, to try to work with states to make this easier. And I should add that the stimulus package does include a lot of money to help with these disaster distributions. But 
again, when I talk to those who actually work at food banks, they say, even though that seems like a big infusion of money, they just worry it's not enough. So if it seems like there's not really a solution for this in sight, and the expectation is that the demand for food banks is only going to get more intense as more people lose their jobs in the coming weeks, what is it like for the people who are working as they're facing this precipice? I talked with so many different directors across the country. They've never seen anything like this in their careers before. And they say that the worst part of all of it is as heavy and scary as it seems right now, they know it's only going to get worse. And that there needs to be some sort of big response to this. And they think it needs to come from the federal government. This isn't a small economic blip on the radar screen, okay? We are in uncharted waters. This is unprecedented. Okay, our economy is collapsing around us. You need to make sure that people are fed. And they're just waiting for some big answer from the government as to what's going to happen to make this better. It's absolutely beyond frustrating. It is heartbreaking. It is heartbreaking to hear the pleas in people's voice, to see the fear on their faces. Okay, not knowing whether they're going to be able to feed themselves and their families. Jenna Johnson is a national political reporter for The Post. Now, one more thing. Evening, everyone. That I would jump online um, quickly and just check in with everyone, really. That's New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern on a Facebook Live about the coronavirus. New Zealand has been on lockdown for the last two weeks. And so far, the coronavirus outbreak there looks very different than it does here in the U.S. In a country of five million people, they have recorded five deaths. So other Western countries have tried to contain the coronavirus and just to flatten the curve. But that's not the case in New Zealand. New Zealand says they, you know, Jacinda Ardern says she wants to keep it out, stamp it out. I'm Anna Fifield. I'm the Washington Post's Beijing bureau chief, but I'm currently locked down in my home country of New Zealand. These decisions will place the most significant restrictions on New Zealanders' movements in modern history. On the Wednesday, the 25th, we went into complete lockdown for four weeks. To be absolutely clear, we are now asking all New Zealanders who are outside essential services to stay at home and to stop all interaction with others outside of those in your household. So that means for these four weeks, New Zealanders are only allowed to go to work if they work in essential jobs, like in healthcare, or if they work at the grocery store. Uh, New Zealanders are only allowed to go out if they're going to the grocery store, uh, or delivering food to an elderly person, perhaps, or if they're exercising in their neighbourhood. You're not allowed to drive to the beach and go for a walk, but you are allowed to walk around your neighbourhood. So this was the plan, and um, Jacinda Ardern said very, very simply at that time, I cannot repeat this enough. 
Staying at home will save lives. Stay home to save lives. This was the message and that everybody had to remain in their bubble. But if you don't comply with the rules, you run the risk of forcing us to extend the period of lockdown. And worse, you could contribute to the virus defeating us and causing harm to thousands. You know, for many people, New Zealand is a paradise. For me, it's a paradise, you know, and for me, it's also home. So it's unusual for us to have to stay at home like this. But um, by and large, everybody is supportive of this. And I think it's because we can see here what happened in Italy, what happened in Spain, what is now happening in the United States when countries did not take this really decisive and quite strict action to try to stamp out the virus. So for a country like New Zealand, which is heavily dependent on tourism, uh, this is going to be very painful, but uh, also it's what's needed to be done to stop this breaking out and ravaging New Zealand in the same way that it has been done in other countries. Anna Fifield is the Beijing bureau chief for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. If you've got questions about the coronavirus or the current state of the outbreak, either here in the U.S. or around the world, reach out to us. Tweet with the hashtag Post Reports, DM me, or join the Post Reports group on Facebook. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening.